Children can be dismissed to uh, Children's Church, and we'll have Tom Scriven come. Well, good morning. Thank you for the invitation to be here once again. Since I was here last, I also spent some time in the hospital. I had a knee replacement, and it's coming along. So if you see me hobbling, that's, that's what the issue is. Uh, and certainly pray, especially for John and Tom, as they recover and as the doctors try to determine what the needs are and how to best help them. What a good God we serve. He is faithful. And this is a month of thanksgiving. And uh, we as Americans have so much to be thankful for. So I trust that you will take this month, this whole month, and just uh, develop a, a new spirit of thankfulness as we get closer to the Thanksgiving season. <clears throat> When we were traveling with the mission, we were in a church in uh, New Jersey, and uh, they were they were uh, going through a special evangelism emphasis, and they were reading a book book called uh, a book together called Divine Appointments. I was not familiar with the book, but after hearing about the book and uh, reading some excerpts, I decided to buy the book. And it's written by a father and son team uh, who have been involved in ministry together, but uh, they also have written a, written a book together. And the book starts out actually by telling the story of the, the mother, the wife, who uh, uh, re- recounts this divine encounter that she had, this divine appointment, with the idea that Nothing in life happens by chance, and we believe that. We believe in a sovereign God who is directing all of life, and he directs our lives, and he directs the, the, he's in control of the world. The world is not out of control. God is in control of the world. It may seem like that at times, but God knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's about. But this October uh, Rainy Monday morning in 1986, the Jacks had just moved into a new house and they wanted to do some painting in in the hallway and a couple of the bedrooms before they got those rooms settled. So here here they were, as you've experienced before, boxes everywhere and uh, furniture kind of in a disarray, and the doorbell rings and she answers the door to see two men uh, a little rough looking behind, the, you know, uh, but uh, they were painters and they introduced themselves. And one of the first things that Betty Jack said to them was, you men don't drink on the job, do you? Oh, no, ma'am. No, we do not drink on the job. And uh, as she invited the, them in, she said, well, thank the Lord for that. Well, little did she know that morning that as those two men walked by her, that one of the men 
had a loaded 44 Magnum under his left arm. He had another gun tucked in the waist in his back. And they had never done an ounce of painting before in their life. Brian had been involved in narcotics. He was running drugs for one of the big syndicated drug cartels out of New York City. And, uh, and uh, while they had not drank that morning and were not going to drink on the job, they smoked six joints before they got on the job. And Brian had a drug habit of $600 worth of cocaine every week. He had joined the fast lane as a teenager, as some other individuals got him involved in drugs, and he was making four or $5,000 a week, driving fancy cars, dating uh, all kinds of women, going to parties, partying with the Hells Angels group, riding motorcycles. This was a rough dude, though he was only 24 years old at the time. He'd lived a lot of life and seen a lot of things. But things started turning sour for him, and he got in debt. He got in debt to the mob, some $50,000. He was in debt to another motorcycle gang for $19,000. So not not only were the narcotics people and the police looking for him, but now he had the mob on his tail looking for him. Thus, he had the firepower as he was even coming to do a simple painting job that day. But he knew that his life was going in the wrong direction. He tried to uh, make some changes, so he decided to do some painting, which he knew very little of, but Mrs. Jacks didn't know that day. Nor did Brian know that just the opposite of his lifestyle, Betty Jacks had spent her life serving the Lord and praying for people like Brian and believing that everyone that stepped over the threshold of their door God had brought them there for a purpose. She had an agenda that morning, a divine appointment. Well, they brought their painting supplies in, and they were laying down tarps and getting ready to start to paint. He felt like, you know, anybody can paint. You know, he'd done a little painting in the past. And uh, Betty went around about in the kitchen unloading boxes, and the men were upstairs beginning to work. Well, about noon, Brian came down for a break, and she was in the kitchen and offered him something to drink. He didn't have much for lunch, but uh, he'd glanced over and seen an open Bible on her counter. And he'd begun to think about his life, knowing that the mob was after him, the uh, narcotics squad, they were after him. And where was his life going as a young 20-year-old? And he brought up the subject. He said, according to that book over there, if I were to die today, do you think I would go to heaven or hell? (laughs) Well, Betty Jacks knew that was an open door. And she actually said, well, sit down a minute, Brian. And he brought up his glass of water and she grabbed her Bible and sat down with him and began to share with him from the gospel of John, sharing how God loved him and gave his life for him. But if she could have pulled up a background check on him, she may have gone shopping instead of sticking around that morning. 
Though 24 years old, the green painter was a, a veteran drug runner. He'd uh, driven fancy cars. He had gold change, chains around his neck and tattoos on his arms. But he knew something was wrong in his life. If I died today, would I be going to heaven or hell? Well, Betty sat down with him and shared the gospel with him and told him that he could know in a personal way that he was going to heaven for sure. And he wanted to hear more. And so he, she, she finally asked him if he knew Christ in a personal way. And he said, ma'am, I have no idea what you're talking about. Two hours later, he spied the clock and felt guilty and got up and said that he, you know, his paint was drying. He needed to get back to work. And Betty assured him, no, this is on my dime. You're fine. And sat down with him again. And felt like it was time to cut to the chase. She looked at Brian and simply paused and asked her signature question. Can you think of any reason, Brian, why don't you, why you don't invite Jesus Christ into your life right now? He sort of fumbled and said, well, I have, I have no idea how to do that. But she went on to share, Jesus said, I tell you, that in the same way they'll be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents more than 99 righteous persons who do not repent from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. However you picture it, she writes, well, the, the husband and wife write, the angels probably started somersaulting before Brian broke the silence. He He figured he'd either find a prison cell or a casket before he found Jesus Christ. But that day, Brian asked Jesus Christ to become his Savior. And since then, he was married, has four children, found his niche as a full-time associate pastor with a toll-free number for kids in crisis around the country. The bulk of his ministry has been among those who are the least and the last and the lost, because Betty Jack's thought that she had a divine appointment, walked through her threshold that day. Jesus, Jesus in John chapter 4, had a divine appointment that he needed to attend to. Imagine being the disciples and waking up every morning with traveling with Jesus and thinking, I wonder what we're going to do today. I wonder what's going to happen uh, in uh, our lives today. And that's, uh, that was the situation as the disciples traveled with Jesus. John chapter 3 relates Jesus' first encounter with a very religious man. And that man, being Nicodemus, was... Uh, was someone who came to Jesus at nighttime and wanted to talk to him. He found Jesus. But in John chapter 4, Jesus finds the woman. And it starts out in that gospel saying, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard 
that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, why did he have to pass through Samaria? The King James says that he needed to go through, he must needs go through Samaria. It's interesting, this woman is never named. Her name wasn't Martha or Abigail or Ruth. She's just known as the woman at the well. That's who we call her. John MacArthur writes, The contrast between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus was striking. He was a devoutly religious Jewish leader dressed in the regal robes of a priest. She was an immoral Samaritan, probably warm and sweaty and tattered clothes as she came to the well that day. Nicodemus was a learned theologian. She was an uneducated peasant woman. He he recognized Jesus, Nicodemus, as a teacher sent by God. She had no no clue who this man was at the well that day when she came to it. He was wealthy. She was poor. He was a member of the social elite of Israel. She was the dregs of Samaritan society, an outcast among outcasts, since the Jews regarded all Samaritans as unclean outsiders. But as you you proceed through the Gospel of John, there are more and more convincing evidences of what John is going to eventually say in John chapter 20, that these things are written... These things are written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life through his name. And this is one of the most amazing accounts that we have, I think, of Jesus meeting someone one-on-one because Jesus sought this lady out. And because of her condition and because of her lot in life. And so... We begin, first of all, and for some reason, this is not working. I have, no, maybe it's going to. (laughs) I have a PowerPoint here. I just hope that it will. Jesus and his divine appointment. The objective is to realize that God has tremendous interest in just one lost and lonely life. No matter who they are, no matter where they are in life, no matter where they've come from. And so we we see this woman at the well, and we see the Savior desiring to meet with her that day. And it says that he needed something. Now, what could Jesus possibly need? But we're, we're caught by that phrase that he needed to go to Samaria. It was a desired connection. The need meter had a need to be met, and he had to go through Samaria. And that is significant. (laughs) Nobody goes through Samaria unless they're forced to, especially not a Jewish rabbi, because that whole area was off limits. It was, those were unclean people. Those were some of the dregs of society. And as you see on the map here, 
so he was going from Judea, and he was going to Galilee. Now, typically, there were three routes that a Jewish person would take. Well, basically two with the the other option. They would, they would either go toward the seacoast and go up the seacoast, or they would go over into Perea and go up along the Jordan River, River to Galilee. A devout Jew would never go through the middle, although that was the quickest route, and right through Samaria. But the Bible tells us that Jesus needed to. And so he left Judea, departed for Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So we see the the significance of the, the need that Jesus had, we see the significance of the place that was the meeting place. This was Jacob's well. What do we know about Jacob's well? Well, the city of Sychar was the ancient city of Shechem and was the capital of the city of the Samaritans. This is where Abraham first came when he arrived from Canaan, when he arrived into Canaan from Babylonia. This is where God first appeared to Abram in Canaan and renewed the promise of giving the land to him and his descendants. This is where Abraham built an altar to God and worshiped him and called upon the name of the Lord. This is where Jacob came safely when he returned with his wives and children from his sojourn with Laban. He came to this area. This is where Jacob bought a piece of land from a Canaanite named Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver. This was the established connection between Jacob and what became known as Jacob's well. The well was dug. It was a deep well. It was a good well. But it was virtually out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And yet God gave them a good water source. This was also the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son, Joseph. Jacob had acquired from the Amorites in an unrecorded battle. This is where the bones of of Joseph were actually buried when they were carried up from Egypt. And this is where Joshua made a covenant with Israel, renewing their commitment to the Lord, the God of Israel, and proclaiming these famous words, As for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So this was a very significant place. The well was over 100 feet deep, and it was cool, and it was chilling, and it was very refreshing, especially on a hot, sultry day. But then let's look at the significance of the person. A woman of Samaria at noonday. As we said, we don't know her name, The Bible doesn't record it, and yet she's in the presence of God today, and God knows her name, and God knows who she was. It was the heat of the day, a most unusual time for someone to take over a half-mile walk to draw water, and they didn't have nice plastic jugs like we have today, did they? Their water pots were... uh, 
porcelain, por, you know, either like a stone kind of water pot, as happened in the uh, miracle at Cana, or some kind of uh, clay pot. But they would they would have been heavy pots, and maybe carried on a on a beam so that she had two of them. But perhaps her lifestyle was part of the reason that she came at an awkward time. Usually you'd come in the morning when it's still cool or in the cool of the evening, but she came in the middle of the day, maybe not to have contact with other women and other people that knew of her lifestyle. By New Testament times, Samaritans were regarded as apostate half-breeds to be avoided. They'd intermarried. They had some of their pagan gods. They would have acknowledged Jehovah God, but they also, you know, they, they had their side gods that they mixed in with their gods. So they were synchronistic in their religious worship. So we see uh, the diverseness or the desired connection. But how about the diverse conversation that takes place here? A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, that doesn't mean anything to us today. But in that day, that was a weird dialogue. Uh, If you remember what the 11th commandment is, your children know what it is. What was it? Thou shalt, you should not talk to strangers. And yet, yet this stranger was engaging in a conversation and desiring something. She was, so many things were wrong here. She was a woman. He was a man. Uh, He was a rabbi. He was a religious leader. She was a woman of ill repute. He was Jewish, obviously, had the Jewish uh, garb on and a prayer shawl. And she was a woman of ill repute, dressed shabbily, probably. Everything was wrong here with this conversation. And then for him to say, notice the wonder of the, the demand that Jesus asked for here. Woman, give me something to drink. No wonder she was taken back. No wonder she said, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman, first of all, of Samaria? Even she's confounded by this. Give me a drink. MacArthur goes on to say, astounding was his willingness to ceremonially defile himself by drinking from her water pot, water pot, Jesus had no water pot. The well was deep, and that's what she brings up later on. You have nothing to draw water out of this well. You're going to have to drink from the same water pot, the same pitcher that I drink from, and you're willing to do that? What, is it, what does that say about our Savior? Willing to come and be one of us and defile himself ceremonially. What a savior. He had no vessel. And so this diverse conversation takes place between the two of them. 
And then there's this disbelievable counteroffer as the Lord sort of turns the tables on her. And he is asked for a drink. By the way, he never gets a drink, does he? He asks her for a drink. And, uh, and instead of giving him a drink, she asks, why, like, why are you even talking to me? Uh, this is not socially, culturally correct. To be, we're not politically correct here, you know. <laughs> Thank God for that. The Jews, the Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. Don't, don't you know this? Like she's sort of instructing the Lord. But Jesus makes this disbelievable counteroffer as he turns the tables on her. And notice what he says. He answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The Lord turns the tables. He asked her for a drink, and now he offers living water to her. And the woman tries to understand, and yet it's very confusing. As with Nicodemus, they're both thinking on the natural plane, aren't they? But Jesus is speaking about something spiritual, on a spiritual plane, something that they did not understand yet because they were not spiritually discerned. There was no spirit working within them to give them understanding. And so the dialogue continues between the two of them. And even though they weren't even supposed to be speaking to each other, I wonder, I've wondered this before, technically, if Jesus had not said anything to the woman, the woman probably would have just come to the well and and maybe got her, you know, brought up her water and not said anything to Jesus because that would have been the right thing to do. But notice, notice Jesus does something here. As with Nicodemus, Jesus talks about the wind and being born of the Spirit and being born again. And Nicodemus is like, how can, I, how can I enter my mother's womb the second time and be born? He doesn't understand. And this woman is in the same boat. The well is deep. You have nothing to draw from. How can you give water? And yet at the same time, she thinks, boy, if I had living water, I wouldn't have to come to this well every day. I wouldn't have to trudge this half mile each way in the hot sun and continue to bring water up. But Jesus is talking about something so much deeper than a deep well. He wants to supply her inner need, that spiritual thirst that he knows she has that she might not even realize, not just the temporary quenching that H2O can provide. So he presents to the woman two things to know. Two things to know. He's creating, notice what he's doing for those who, who, who share Jesus with other people. This is a good lesson in evangelism. He's creating a thirst in this woman's heart that she didn't even know she had. And notice what he, he says. He presents two things that she 
could know that she should know. If you knew the gift of God, where did that come from? Because Jesus knew that she had a so much greater need than just having physical water supply that quenching in her body. And what is this gift? If you knew the gift of God, well, obviously she didn't. She was not spiritually discerned. She did not understand the gospel. I grew up in church, (laughs) went to church for 19 years, and I never really heard the gospel. I knew John 3.16. I knew Daniel in the lion's den. I knew Noah in the ark. I knew Jesus came to earth and performed miracles. I knew that at Easter time, we celebrated his death and resurrection. But that's all I knew. I didn't experience it. What is the gift of God? Well, we don't have time to really explore that this morning, but very simply, the gift of God is the entire package, salvation from God, God's grace, forgiveness of sin, new life in Jesus Christ, fellowship with the Father, an eternal home, peace with God, complete rest, the working of the Holy Spirit coming into a life and changing that life, The gift for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That whole package. And he didn't didn't, uh, go on to explain that in detail but he did present this to create a thirst if you knew the gift of God. Like he's holding it out there like it's possible. You can know that even though you're a Samaritan. So that was the first thing that he desired the woman to know. Secondly, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, give me a drink. She had no idea who he was. Nicodemus knew that this was a rabbi, Lord, or he, he said to him, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do and say these things unless he comes from God. So there was an, an acknowledgement that, that Nicodemus was, uh, was aware of the, 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 some of the distinction of Jesus. But this woman, she didn't have a clue who he was. He could have been a traveling shoe salesman for all she knew. (laughs) She had no idea. But Jesus creates a thirst by saying, if you knew who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink. But the very gift of God was speaking to this woman about the gift of God. And the gift was him. The gift of God was speaking to her about the gift. So Jesus was drawing this woman into conversation, making her curious, curious about several things. He made her curious about the things of God. 
if you knew the gift of God. He made her curious about who he, who he is and who it is that is speaking to you. And he made her curious about what he could give her. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him. Instead of him asking you, you would ask him, and he would have given you not just H2O, refreshing, cold, cool water, but he would give to you living, life-sustaining, flowing water for your spiritual need that you have in life. She, it still didn't click. She still didn't understand. But she's, she's curious. She's going along with him. He's, she's tracking him. And she's following that. The result, Jesus said, if you knew these things, you would have asked and he would have given you living water, creating, this could be your potential future. You could have living water and all that means. And obviously she didn't really know what that meant. But this water, this water will satisfy, this water in the well will, will satisfy you, but the water that I'm speaking about will, will sustain you forever. It's continual and it's unending. You would ask and he would give you living water. Her reply Yes, okay, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, so that I will not need to come here day after day, time after time to draw, you know, they had no living, they had no indoor plumbing, they had no wells close to their house. You want water, you have to trek a mile or so to get that water and to bring it back. Yes, I would like that water. Give it to me. Uh, Where do... (laughs) Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, he dug this well and we drank from it. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsting again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And he drew her into the conversation, and he made her curious about what he could give her. (laughs) Sad to say, though, Jesus never got a drink of water out of the deal. In fact, the woman ends up leaving her water pots and going into the village, but now a new creature in Christ. And Jesus Jesus is going to turn the tables on her, and has already, but he's going to make this disbelievable uh, counteroffer, which he has made, and then he's going to change gears, so to speak, because all of a sudden we see this divine conviction coming as Jesus exposes the heart of the issue. And so what, what may seem to us sort of out of the blue, Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Now, why does, why does he do that? What, what's, what's this all about? Jesus is going, to, going for the heart of the issue. 
Why does he seem to switch gears and bring up her family situation? MacArthur comments, those who truly thirst for the righteousness of God, for the righteousness God provides in salvation, the water of life, will need to confess and forsake their wicked ways. Jesus knew this woman's heart. He knew what he he knew what she really needed. She didn't need more water to take home with her. She needed eternal life. But he knew that her life was in shambles. Just just like Brian's life when he went in to do that paint job. He was sort of at the, the end of his rope, and Jesus knew that this woman was. How do we know that? Because Jesus exposes the truth. As he says, go call your husband. And the woman answered, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband because the person that you're living with right now is not your husband. He's just a living mate. But you've had five husbands. And you don't go through five relationships without a lot of hurt. I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through divorce. There's nothing pretty about it. It's painful. It's hurtful. There's loneliness. There's betrayal. There's a lot of heartache. Imagine going through five relationships and finally saying, you know, (laughs) this isn't working very well, and you meet someone else, Forget the marriage, let's just live together. And the woman partially confesses, but Jesus is going to completely unmask her sin. You're right. The Lord rejects the notion that living together constitutes a marriage. No, you're not married now, you're just living with someone. And he's probing the inner recesses of her heart, but why? Because that's where spiritual surgery really needs to take place. She needed a change of heart. The pain from five failed marriages and now just shacking up with someone who won't make a commitment again. And you don't want to make a commitment because your heart will be torn apart again. The woman needs much more than just a continual source of running water, she needs a life change. She needs a radical heart transplant, doesn't she? And Jesus wants to give her that. One commentator writes, Scripture knows nothing of a salvation without repentance, and that always involves turning from sin. And that's what he was after today. A salvation that does not change a life, does not save a soul. And so we see the woman's confession. She confesses. How do you know this? How do you know all this? You must be a prophet. She acknowledged that. And she acknowledged that uh, obviously she cannot hide. How do you hide from someone who seems to know all about you? Like King David when Nathan came in, after that year's time that David had spent 
trying to cover his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. And Nathan simply came in and told him this moving story and then simply spoke, King David, you're the man, and uncovered his lie. And Jesus left this woman completely vulnerable and open. But what is he going to do next? He's going to disclose who he really is. I think the woman is ready to meet God. True worship is not in a place, as they discuss, but true worship is with Almighty God in spirit and in truth. It's more than signing a card. It's more than walking down front. It's more than shaking a pastor's hand. It's a change of life where you're not the same anymore. You don't have to become a Christian in church. I became a Christian in the backseat of a 1969 Firebird on April 8th, a number of years ago, when I heard the gospel from the first to- for the first time and was presented the question, would you like to receive Jesus Christ into your life? And I said yes and did. But it's about worshiping a God and about a coming Messiah. And Jesus, Jesus is willing to reveal his identity. This is, this is a shocking statement, especially considering all the players here and the situation. And Jesus simply said to her, as she has some idea of a Messiah, and she confesses, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. She just made the claim that Jesus is probably a prophet. And now Jesus is going to to move on to the next step. When 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 this Messiah comes, she says, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, in, in the original, it's I who speak to you am. This is one of his I am statements. He didn't reveal himself to too many people, did he? Remember when he was in front of Pontius Pilate and Pilate asked him, who are you? You remember when the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin came and asked him who he was? But this woman, ready to meet God... <laughs> gets this tremendous revelation. As MacArthur says, Jesus' words must have rocked the woman to the core of her being. I who speak to you, I am the Christ. (laughs) And just about that time, the disciples come in and we have that. But what does the woman do? Well, she obviously... (laughs) She obviously believed. And so she goes into town and she goes she goes crazy with advertising. Come see a man who's told me all things that ever I've done. Is not this, this the Christ? As Jesus reveals himself to this woman, Jesus' words must have totally floored this woman, as we said. Unlike Nicodemus, she knew nothing of signs and miracles Jesus had performed, 
but merely because of what he knew about this woman, there was no doubt as to who he was. The Christ, the Son of the living God. And she went into the community and spread the news, and people believed her and came out. And the story goes on, and heaven only knows how many people from Samaria were converted because Jesus ended up staying there a couple of days with his disciples. All of this to bring us to our thoughts today. Jesus Christ is, present tense, both the giver of the eternal water of life and of the today water of life. You know, often we, you know, we sort of divorce truth and put it into the future. Oh yeah, Jesus will give us living water, you know, and we're going to heaven and we're going to live forever. But how about today? Some of us, maybe all of us, we need living water today, like the woman at the well. I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. But then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well that never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting in my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. We need to be careful not to just see a Savior out there somewhere in the future, but a very present help in time of trouble. Jesus Jesus is a need meter today, right now, for those that have had surgery, for those that are in the hospital, for those that have lost loved ones, for those that have COVID, for those that are trying to keep away from getting COVID, right now. How about your need this morning? Lord, thank you for giving us the living water of eternal life. Jesus would later stand up and make that bold statement of being the water of life. And we can know him, and we do know him. And if someone is here today and they're still not certain, well, I hope I go to heaven They could meet the need meter today and have that need of knowing for certain that they have eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. And we thank you. Amen. Since I skipped it before, we're going to sing 273, Fill My Cup, Lord. We're going to sing the first verse and the third verse, 273,